All right, we are in Ezekiel chapter 18, if you'd open your Bibles there. We're calling this study, When Proverbs Go Sour. An idiom is an expression whose meaning cannot be deduced from the literal definitions of the words that make up the expression. In other words, you couldn't look up the meaning of each word in a dictionary and comprehend the meaning of the sentence. Idioms are often deeply ingrained into our culture. They go back many generations and oftentimes are used without thinking. They can be funny or nonsensical when translated into another language. Now, I found this common list of English idioms translated into various languages. Uh, I don't know these languages, and so I'm taking it, you know, by faith that the linguists that did this are telling me the truth. But, for example, water under the bridge, they say, translates in Portuguese to past waters don't power mills. Money doesn't grow on trees translates in Arabic to the sky doesn't throw chicks. I don't know what that means. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed translates in Spanish to he doesn't have two fingers of a forehead. And uh, now this one I actually like. I think we ought to uh, use this to sleep in, which we always talk about sleeping in. To sleep in translates in French to pillow failure. Now, I could use that. People say, what happened to you? I'm having pillow failure. Actually, it'd be pillow success, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be pillow success. All right, I don't know if those are even true, but it's on the Internet, so it must be. In our text, we're going to encounter something like that, only it's called a proverbial saying. And if we're not careful, we won't know what it's saying. Uh, It's right at the beginning. It's in verse 2. So let's read verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now forget our modern use of the expressions sour grapes and set your teeth on edge. Those phrases have a totally different meaning in Hebrew. The Hebrew for set your teeth on edge seems to mean when you trace it down, something like makes your mouth tingle. And sour grapes wasn't an idiom at all. Think of sour grapes as just that, grapes that had soured. Some people like sour tasting foods. Do you like sour tasting foods? Some people like, you know, sweet and sour. It's a famous thing. There Aren't there candies, sweet and sour candies? No one likes sour anything? Okay, thank you. I, I demand a response. The proverb is communicating. What, what, what's actually being said here is that the children can taste what their parents have consumed. And so it's, the, the proverb means to the Hebrew, the parents are eating sour grapes and somehow the children are tasting the grapes. In the context in which they were using it, the proverb was intended to communicate that they felt like they were being judged by God for the things that their parents had done. In other words, God was being unfair in bringing judgment against them because everything they were going through was their parents' fault. Now, they may have had Exodus 20, verse uh, 4 and 5 in mind. Let me read that to you. 
There we read, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that what God does? And is he being unfair when he does it? Well, the point of these verses in Exodus was that the effects of sin are serious and long-lasting, not that God punishes the innocent for their ancestors' evil ways. Now, how do I know that is the correct interpretation? Because of what the Lord said next to Ezekiel. He says in verse 3, As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. God just says you're wrong. Visiting iniquity upon the children did not mean that He punished them unfairly for their father's sins, nor did it mean they had no choice but to sin. Here's what was happening in Israel. The fathers had sinned, and it had brought upon the descendants the consequences of the 70-year Babylonian captivity. But within those consequences, each Jew was being held personally responsible for their own actions at the time. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? And here's an illustration. Maybe this made sense to me. Maybe it'll make sense to you. On a national level in our own country, I always hear politicians talk about how the effect of the decisions we make today will have on future generations of Americans. Remember that during the campaign and all the time when they're talking about deficit spending and all of this? The things we decide today, good or bad, are going to have far-reaching effects on our children. So we know this to be true. Uh, And so this is an inevitable uh, flow of human behavior especially at a governmental or a national level, whatever our forefathers decided will have consequences on their children. In the case of, uh, but still, each generation must take responsibility for individual actions in whatever situation they find themselves. And that's all that God is saying. In the case of the Jews, personal responsibility was going to be a matter of life and death in light of the Babylonian invasion. God gave a series of four instances to show what he was doing among them. It started with this important statement in verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now, souls in our context, talking uh, to the Jews in the Old Testament, it's a word that means persons. In this section, we are not talking about eternal life, but the quality of physical life on the earth. God was dealing with them on the basis of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that He had made with Moses. The covenant God made with Moses promised physical blessings for obedience to the law and it promised physical curses for disobedience to the law. And so that was, that was part of the covenant with Moses. God would bless them physically with life and abundance should they obey the law Should they disobey the law, he would punish them with death. Covenant was made with people who already had been delivered and who already had a relationship with God. The law did not save them. The law wasn't given to save them, not even the Jews. It was given to a delivered people to tell them how to live. Now, when God said the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine... He meant that he was dealing with them as individuals who were responsible for their own actions. 
The soul who sins, whether it be father or son, would die physically as a punishment under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. No son would die for the sins of his father. God was being fair, equitable to his people. Now, in verses 5 through 9, God presents a just father. He says, if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, which is a reference to a certain type of idolatry, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, If he has not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes, that's a summary statement, because if he's walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. Now, when you read the word just in this chapter, it's not describing the theological concept of justification by faith. God isn't saying if you do these things, he will justify you. Again, these people had been delivered. They'd, been, they'd come out of the nation of Egypt, a delivered, blood-covered people. God gave them the law, and He says, this is how you are to live. And, and these things that He talks about here are the right way of living on earth, things to do, things not to do, according to the law of God. All of the things that we talked about in these verses... Verses 5 through 9 can be found somewhere in the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy or Leviticus as the proper conduct of a man who is seeking to live by the law of God, seeking to please God. There are things that he does, there's things that he doesn't do. And God says, this is how you should live, and if you live this way, I will bless you with life and blessing in life. Now, next, God described this just man's unjust son. And so, though he was just, God envisioned a situation where his son would be unjust. Verse 10, if he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols or committed abomination, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. And so God makes it clear, the unjust son of a just father, because he sins willfully against the law of God, he will suffer punishment under the law. And in that case, it's the penalty of physical death. He bears his own punishment. The the justness of his father doesn't pass to him nor uh, vice versa. <clears throat> Next, God describes this unjust man's just son. And so that, by the time we're through, you're going to think, okay, I get it. But the Jews were seriously impugning God's character. This was their uh, proverbial saying. They found themselves in this distressing situation, and instead of taking any personal responsibility, well, the... Sour grapes that the parents eat are tasted by their children. In other words, we didn't, we didn't contribute to this. God is doing this to us. Uh, God is unfair. Why follow Him? And so God belabors this. And so in verse 14, if, however, He begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, 
we can stop there for a moment and talk for about three hours because everybody has decided, you know, we live, I, I, this is just my armchair psychology, but we kind of live in a society now where nothing is anybody's fault anymore. It's whatever your parents did. If they were good, eh, they weren't good enough, but mostly they were bad. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, it's not my fault. You know, I followed my parents' example. I came from a broken home. And Now, notwithstanding that some people came from a terrible home, but still, it's true that you can break that cycle. Because God says, here's a just father, an unjust son, and now a just grandson who sees his father and says, yeah, I don't want that. I, I don't have to do that. I'm going to live according to the law. And so, verse 15... He hasn't eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife. He has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge. He hasn't robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing. He's withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury and increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. And so, a good picture of just daily living among the Jews. God said, here's a summary of how you should get through your day. You should help the poor. You should not oppress. You should uh, not covet. You know, just he hits some key points and he says, father and son... The son is not bound to repeat the sins of the father at all. Uh, and so we know that the passage in Exodus now isn't talking about some kind of generational curse where the children can't break out of it. It's talking about the national consequences. We, a lot of times we forget that Israel was a nation, a theocracy ruled by God. And, and, and we need to think of it a lot of times as a tribal nation and, and God's judgments in that way. And so God says, yeah, what you do is going to have consequences on your children. And you know what? You should think about that. Does... Now, there's nothing unfair about that, is there? I think, in fact, I think that's quite a motivator. It should be. When, to anybody who's a rational, loving, compassionate person to think, ooh, what I do will affect my children who I love. Don't you love your children? I mean, could you love them anymore? You know, they drive you crazy sometimes, but you just, you love them so much. You want what's best for them. You want what's right for them. You want to make good decisions, right decisions. Nobody in their right mind says, well, I don't care about my kids. What do I care? And, and so that's the thing. And so God says, yeah, so what you decide obviously is going to have some consequences on a national level. That's, that can't be helped in a society, in a linear society. You can't start over again in each generation. There are decisions that have been made, you know, legislation that's been passed, bills that have been passed, boundaries that have been drawn, those kinds of things that you have to, your children have to live with. But within that, there is still the opportunity for those children to be blessed by making their own way. Now, uh, verse 19, Yet you say, Why should the son not bear the guilt of his father? Because the Son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not bear the guilt of the Father, nor the Father bear the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. 
Uh, and so God is actually turning it around. They were saying, well, our fathers were evil, and so though we're good, you know, God is holding us responsible. And, and God is saying, no, no, uh, the son doesn't need to bear the guilt of the father. You're making that up. You just don't want to do what's right. You don't want to have personal responsibility. Don't you hate it? Back, well, not just children, but in any situation, if you're a person in authority, a boss or any, you know, don't you hate it when people just don't take responsibility for what they've done? You know they've done it. They know they've done it. But there's a, a lack of personal responsibility. It is so refreshing when a person just says, I did it. I was wrong. Let's deal with it. Let's, let's get into the consequences of it. Uh, and, man, you can stop a lot of arguments that way, too. You know, I mean, if you're wrong, just admit it. Take responsibility for your actions. Now, we'll talk a little more about personal responsibility in a moment. They are spoken here, uh, these words are spoken here to correct the Jews. They had a wrong view of God's justice justice, and thus a wrong view of God. We would not know God except for his revelation of himself. We need, you understand that, right? I mean, creation declares the glory of God. There's certain, we can know that there is a God, uh, but... Man, if you just watch these nature shows, you get a kind of a skewed view of God. You really are. I always wonder, why don't they save that poor water buffalo? You know? I mean, there's always, you know, the cameraman, they're, they're nature people, they're environmentalists, they're, they're producing these things because they want to save these creatures, and then they let them get killed, you know, and stuff. And so I think, well, do some. Put the camera down. Go in there and fight that polar bear for that seal. But creation declares the glory of God, and, and God is revealed through creation, but you don't know the nature of God. You can't know the character of God in creation, and, and that's you get into these nature religions, and you know, they're kind of weird as a result, because there's a lot of violence in nature. There's blood and, and all of that. And so uh, God has revealed Himself, and whatever He has revealed in His Word and through His Son, Jesus Christ, that is true no matter what I might think about it, to the contrary. Here's how important it is to take God at His word. Some years ago, a Jewish rabbi wrote a book titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was his attempt to reconcile the fact that God is love, but that God allows suffering in the lives of people he considers good. He couldn't reconcile it, and so his conclusion was that God must either be love or almighty, but that he couldn't be both at the same time. Because an almighty God, who was also a loving God, would not let people go through suffering. And so his conclusion was that God was love, because he wanted to hold on to that, but that he was not almighty. Now, what good is a God who loves me, but can't ultimately help me? And just says, eh, I don't know what's happening, but I love you. You know, we'll get through this together. Uh, I mean, you know, it's crazy. And, but he came to a wrong conclusion. The Bible says that God is love and that he is omnipotent. And I may be in a situation where I don't see how those two things reconcile. In fact, whenever I have suffering, I have trouble with that. I think, well, God, you love me. How about you get me out of this? How about I don't need this trial in my life? You know, that kind of a thing. But then I have to believe that all things work together for what? Good 
for them that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes because he is a good, loving God. And so, so th- it's very important that we take God at his word and not come to our own conclusions. In the next illustration, God moves away from fathers and sons and just gives a generalization. Verse 21, if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he's going to live. He'll not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. Now, remember, we're only talking about temporal earthly destinies of men, not their salvation. A wicked man who repented could yet be spared physical death. It was going to be up to him. You know, the background of this, we are in Ezekiel. Babylon is coming. They're at the door. They're going to overrun Jerusalem. Ezekiel's talking to the Jews in Babylon about these general conditions, and he's saying, this is like an altar call. He's saying, so, you understand what I've said? You're responsible for your own sin, and if you're a wicked man, if you're in that camp of the wicked, there's still time for you to repent and live. Verse 23. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? God takes no pleasure in sentencing wicked men to physical death. He would rather they repent and enjoy life. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he does, uh, has done, excuse me, shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. God is fair under the law. This doesn't mean that every wicked person will be killed immediately or that no righteous person would die young. It means that with regard to the blessings and cursings prescribed by the Mosaic Covenant, God holds each person individual responsible and so the big picture is this in general god is fair under the mosaic covenant you're a jew you're living under the mosaic covenant even though you're in babylon you're in captivity god is still enforcing the mosaic covenant he says yeah that's the pro- that's a problem we had some years ago with the idolatry of your parents and the fact that they didn't keep the sabbath now they owe, you know i'm owed 70 years And you're going to have to go through that difficult time. Uh, But within that, I'm still going to enforce the Mosaic Covenant. And if you want to walk with me and you want to obey me and be a just person, I will bless you with life and I will bless your life. But if you want to be a wicked person and blame your parents and say you didn't have anything to do with it, continue in your idolatry, then your life is going to suffer. Then on a very individual basis, God would still deal with them and say, okay, now... You, I'm going to take you through this and I'm going to let this work, wicked person live a little bit longer as a testimony to my grace. So I think you understand what's happening. He's just saying, hey, I'm fair and I deal with the individual and you can't say anything otherwise. And to do anything beyond that is to impugn the character of God. And so he says in verse 25, yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair. Because they were like ascribing guilt you know, to people that had no responsibility for it. They were the ones being unfair. And I would guess, I, I didn't really think this through totally in a philosophical sense, but 
I think every time you accuse God of being unfair, it's you that's being unfair. God can turn that around on you and show you that it's kind of like when we were raising the kids and they'd say, well, those are out there. And we'd say, do you want us to be fair? And then they'd say, well, no, not really. Because you need wiggle room for grace and mercy, you know, fairness. And, And so people, you know, God is more than fair. It's people that are not fair. And if the world was run the way people thought it should be run, well, it's going to be in the tribulation. It's going to last about three and a half years. And then after that, the whole thing starts falling apart. The last three and a half years is everybody trying to kill one another in giant warfare and stuff. And so the world, you know, God's got a a pretty good idea of how things should run and we should go with that. Now, God holds a man personally responsible for his actions, though we are talking specifically about the blessings and cursings of the Mosaic Covenant The fact of personal responsibility is true no matter what covenant you find yourself under. Verse 26, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which uh, which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness, wickedness, I can't talk tonight. Let's just slow down, take a deep breath, center ourselves. Oh, When a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Now again, these were super important considerations to the Jews that were being addressed. The Jews in Jerusalem were about to be overrun by Nebuchadnezzar's forces Death and life were very real. There were going to be Jews, a lot of them, who were going to be killed. Uh, And so God is giving them this last kind of push and saying, don't blame me for what's happening. Uh, You know, the, the Babylonian captivity, that's on your parents. But if you had just listened to Jeremiah, everything would have been fine. Everything was going to go well in Babylon. Sure, you're going to be oppressed, but you could live there and prosper there. But you had to go and seek out Egypt, didn't you? You, you, just, you weren't content with me telling you that everything was going to be all right. So now Nebuchadnezzar was going to come. He had had enough of the Jews. He was going to wipe them out. Now God is making his final push saying, but still, even though that's true, if you're a just man under the law, I will spare your life. Now, how could the just escape such a thing? Well, fast forward to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. What happened to the Christians when Titus and the Roman legions came and destroyed Jerusalem uh, 500 years later? Well, early Christian historians Eusebius and Epinephius claim that, uh, which by the way, that is not how you pronounce his name, but that's kind of what it turned into, uh, two guys with really weird names, claim that prior to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, the Jerusalem Christians fled to the Decapolis city of Pella. And there's a long tradition in the Christian church, Christian history, that Christians were spared from that judgment because they were walking with the Lord. And so God is able to spare the lives. And remember earlier in Ezekiel, he went out with an inkhorn and he put marks on certain just individuals and he said those people are going to be saved. 
from physical judgment. And so God is, hey, you guys need to repent. Forget your parents. It's not going to be on your mom and dad. When the Babylonian soldier, when that Chaldean comes with his sword to run you through, you're not going to be able to say, ah, this is, you know, you're killing my dad, not me. Oh, no, he's killing you because you're an unjust person. Uh, and, And just hear me out. Hang out in Babylon. Everything's going to be okay. Daniel's going to get it high up in the government. Nebuchadnezzar's going to get saved. And we're going to get through this captivity together. Verse 29, Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent. Turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed. Get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Again, talk about belaboring a point. How many times has God repeated this now in these verses? When the Lord mentions the new heart and the new spirit, He's reiterating what was true even under the law He was never interested in mere outward obedience, but real obedience from the motive of a loving heart. Now, these people deserved the judgment that was coming. Sure, they were subject to Babylon because of their ancestors, but in Babylon, had they turned from their own sin to serve the Lord, they would have prospered. Indeed, many would prosper as Daniel did. There were many righteous Jews and they were preserved. It was tough. It was difficult. Uh, but that's because they were under a national judgment. But God... And, and think, actually, it's a very remarkable thing when you think about the, the justice of God, how that God could use this wicked nation, Babylon, this world-ruling empire, to judge His people but still be true to them under His covenant that He had made with Moses and protect them. Uh, it, God is... is it, rather than being unfair, He's tremendously merciful and gracious as the righteous Jews understood. Although these verses are only addressing the physical aspects of life and death under the law, they do reveal something important. It is the nature of God to hold a person responsible for their actions. That being true, we understand, therefore, there must be a free will. Without free will, there can be no personal responsibility and so we believe that that there is personal responsibility requiring free will within the sovereignty of God as Norman Geisler puts it and I quote sound reason demands that there is no responsibility where there is no ability to respond it is not rational to hold someone responsible when they could not have responded and God is not irrational both scripture and good reason inform us that human beings have the power of free choice. Here's another way of looking at it. Let's say you come to the conclusion that out from all of humanity, only a small group of people are predestined to be saved. The rest, the vast majority, cannot be saved because they are predestined for damnation. Most people would say, that doesn't seem fair, based upon the fact that God was holding them responsible without giving them the ability to choose. And I think that's what God would say, and that's what He does say here in our chapter. He says, I'm fair, and I hold you personally responsible for your free will choices. They are two important 
compatible truths. And so just some food for thought uh, at the end of our study here in uh, terms of personal responsibility. And uh, amen, all parents know this, right? Your children, you hold them. They only get away with that one time, right? You made me do it. It's your fault. Uh, you know, uh, if it wasn't for your exam, say, all right, let's, let's get over this and let's get through this and uh, I'm going to hold you responsible. Amen.